It's Joshua chapter 2 that we're looking at. And um, a couple of weeks ago, because last week we had Christians Against Poverty with us, which was fabulous. Um, Terry came and shared with us, which was great. And the week before that, you'll remember that Carl spoke. So I spoke initially from Joshua 1, and then Carl spoke from Joshua 1 as well, but kind of backtracked a little bit to tell a bit of the history of how did the people get there. Um, And uh, the people have been on the edge of the promises of God before. They've been close to seeing what God was going to do, and then they completely blew it. And where you have chapter 1 and the end of chapter 2, uh, this is kind of about 40 years later, and the people are on the edge of the promises of God again. They're on the edge of great things. There. They're on the edge of the promised land. Okay, And um, they've been told by God to be strong. You can be courageous. You can do that. So you would expect, right, if that's the narrative, you would expect this next chapter, chapter 2, to be, come on, we're doing this. Let's go. Be strong, be courageous. The very next thing would be they're on it. It's not quite happening just yet. There's a bit of an interlude. So I'm, I'm not going to quote the whole thing at this point. I'm just going to give the Dangauer translation of Joshua chapter 2. If you want to follow on with the authentic real Bible, uh, there's Bibles over there. and I encourage you to do that. But this is my summary of Joshua chapter 2. Because otherwise, I'd just read Joshua chapter 2 and that's all you get. Some of you think that would be quality. But let me just, this is my summary. Two young men enter the city of Jericho. They're spies. We don't know what they look like. We don't know how they, you know, how did they dress up to look like spies? Um, Did they go kind of James Bond-esque or was it just they dressed as the people of Jericho? We're not told any information. We're just told two young men, two blokes, go into Jericho. A walled, formidable city. Not a massive amount of distance from Jericho. Jordan. It's like the entrance point to the rest of uh, the rest of kind of the nation, except it's nice. You know, like Calais is like the gateway to France. But when you talk to French people, no one wants to live in Calais. Well, a bit like Dover, I suppose, the other way around. It's like the entrance point. Jericho is like, this is the start point. Once you get beyond Jericho, the land is before you. The, the, there's everything. It, it's, all, it's all there. So the place is Jericho. And uh, these two men take refuge. They go to an inn. They go somewhere where they think, oh, I know we're not going to stand out. So they go to um, Rahab's place. Rahab is a prostitute. So um, without kind of being crude, they get some guests, okay? People would, people would visit. That, that's what would happen. And so actually, they're thinking, well, we won't be massively out of place to do that. We might fit in. So we'll go to Rahab's place. We'll, we'll go there just to kind of, I don't know, do spy things. Check out what the city's like. See what's going on. This isn't like a Trojan horse exercise. They haven't got like plans to, to poison the king. They're literally like just scouting out the city. And they end up at Rahab's place. But somehow the king finds out. They get rumbled. And they're in mass trouble. Jericho police department turn up at the door. And start interviewing Rahab. And saying, excuse me miss. Um, are two suspicious men in your property. And she says, oh yeah, they came, but I don't know where they are right now. Um, They've disappeared. I saw them leave by that gate. And if you probably go the long way round and you end up going to the Jordan, you'll be able to cut them off and, you know, kill them and stab them and have your way and do all that. That's great. I haven't seen them. I've no idea where they are. See you later. Whereas in fact, actually, she's put them on their roof. She's covered them in some flax. She's hidden the spies and she's just lied to Jericho PD, which you think, actually, crumbs, that's, that's a pretty big deal, okay? Um, this is all she's ever known. They're her people. 
a couple of spies? Why is she lying for a couple of nobodies that mean nothing to her, seemingly? And so all that takes place. She rescues these two spies from sure death. She goes back up after Jericho PD have disappeared. And she has a little conversation with them and says, I've heard great things about your God. Um, when you come back, which I know you're going to come back because all of, all of us are melting away, will you please rescue me and my family? And so what she does is her, her inn is in the city wall, and so she's got, like a, she's got a window view of the plane, and so she has this scarlet cord that she lets down. It must be quite long, I guess, to go from a bit like Rapunzel's hair. Goes from the top and comes down to the bottom, and they climb down the scarlet cord, and the spies escape, and they go back, and they say to her, Rahab, all you need to do is that same cord that you let us down by, leave that hanging out your window, and when we come to destroy Jericho, we'll remember you. When we come back and raise this place to the ground, which is what we're going to do, we'll remember you and we'll spare you and your family. Anyone who's inside your house, they'll be fine. Anyone who's gone to the shops and gets caught in, up, caught in it, we can't take responsibility for that. They go back, they tell Joshua all this stuff. Joshua's like, oh, that's good. Let's go. That is Joshua chapter 2. And uh, so you kind of think, okay, that's the story. But I've got a few kind of points that I think spring up from that story. And I will quote from the Bible as we go as well, so you can see it as we go. But that just by way of summary as to what goes on in chapter 2. A remarkable story, really, of how a prostitute who is not really known to the Israelite people, she's not one of God's people, saves a couple of God's people, and then, as we see in uh, later, uh, when Jericho happens, which is chapter 6, I think, that she gets saved by God's people too, because she's put her faith in God. So, do you remember how at the start I said they'd been on the edge of the promises of God before? Okay, and they'd blown it. Numbers 13 was what Carl looked at and read from a little bit. And uh, they sent out spies to the land, and they saw a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm not quite, I mean, it's a metaphor. I don't think it actually was that. But, it, you know, this beautiful land, there was great fruit. It was amazing. It was, it was the place to be. And yet they also saw a bunch of obstacles. They saw people from Anak, you know, muscly, strong, tall men, intimidating men. And they thought, you know what? I know there's some beautiful stuff here, but it's not worth it. <laughs> We're going to get mauled. We're going to get done in. And they bottled it, and they didn't believe the promises of God. And then Joshua now is in that same position. It once was Moses, now it's Joshua. And then it starts chapter 2 like this, curiously. I think it's curious. Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies. Go view the land, especially Jericho. And you think, like, for me, when I read that, even though I know the story, um, like, alarm bells were going off in my head, like, uh-oh, deja vu. Why are we sending spies again, Joshua? You know the report is good. You know what's in the land. What are you doing? Are you getting cold feet here, mate? And you start thinking, oh, no, history is about to repeat himself. Whereas, actually, I don't think that's the case. We could say Joshua is being a tactical genius. He's trying to understand the inner workings of Jericho. But when we get to Jericho, he doesn't actually need to know the inner workings of the city. Uh, without kind of spoiling the story, it's a bit weird. Um, what happens. And they don't even like, it's not like they're firing bows and arrows and torching the place. They're just playing some musical instruments and going on a long walk. Um, and God does a remarkable thing. It's not as if he needed to scout out the city. 
But maybe he's a bit of a tactical genius. I think actually something else is going on here instead. I honestly believe that God wants to show us something. It's like the whole narrative's been put on pause. And God wants to show us something about his heart. And it all seems to revolve around this lady, Rahab, in chapter 2. A city that they're about to wipe out, but the narrative is paused for one woman and her family. And um, it got me thinking a little bit about perhaps they felt on, on the wrong side of the Jordan as, as Joshua was sending out spies again. They felt a little bit in limbo. I don't know if you've ever felt like that. Perhaps in your walk with God sometimes, you're like, okay, God, I know that you want me to do something, but when? Or God, I, I know that I've got this dream or I've got this thing birthed inside me, but how? Or, or you talk about being filled with the Spirit and uh, I, I'm walking in this way and I, I want more of you, God, but when's that going to happen? And you can feel a little bit in limbo sometimes, can't you? Maybe that's just me, I don't know, but sometimes you can feel like that. You feel, oh, God, there's got to be something more here. And perhaps that's what they were feeling as they were on the edge. They were like, well, they're sending the spies, but, but, but why? We're just waiting, let's go, let's go, let's go. What's happening here? And God's saying, no, there's something more important here, that there's someone in that city that I want to rescue. There's something about, we see God's heart for rescuing people here that overrides anything else. And it just got me thinking a little bit about, perhaps as a church we're thinking, oh, 10th of July, that's a couple of months away. Uh, well, six weeks now, I think, six or seven weeks. It's not that far away. You think, well, what's going to happen? It's a bit of a mystery. Will we get it? Won't we get it? Are we in? Are we out? Are we going to shake it all about? What, what, what's what's going to happen? What's going to happen if we don't get it? What's going to happen if we do get it? What's, what's life going to be like? What's church going to be like? And we can be like, wow, it's going to be amazing. Look how awesome the land will be when we fill it with a car park and we'll have beautiful trees and it will be amazing. We'll be able to come in on a Sunday and we won't have to set up and we won't have to set down. There's a few people who are quite excited about that. We'll be able to leave stuff in a building and everyone's going, oh, this is great. This is great. It's not the point, is it? When we're in limbo, we can get a little distracted with, oh, what's going on or what's going to happen? Well, actually, it needs to be about this is a rescue center. This is a shining light. This is a place of rescue. And you see that heart of the rescue of God even here. It got me thinking a little bit about church and church buildings. You think, well, what is a hospital for? Who is a hospital for? You would say a hospital is for doctors, right? A hospital is for nurses, a hospital is for health professionals, for physios, for um, porters. All kinds of people work at a hospital. But to say a hospital is just for those people kind of misses the point, doesn't it? A hospital is for the sick. A hospital is for those that need a doctor, those that need healing, those that are poorly, those that need care. Well, what about the church? Is it for the bell ringers? Maybe. Is it for the vicars? Is it, is it for those people? Well, sure, they're a part of a church, but it's not just for those, is it? The Bible talks about how it's for the lost, for the least, for all people. A place where actually people can encounter the love of Jesus. People encounter the love of Christ. People that already know Christ can be built in their faith and grow in their faith. Uh, and it's a place of rescue. And actually, the building, the walls, is just that, just walls. It's about a people. And when we feel like in limbo, perhaps they thought, oh, we're only going to be God's people when we get to the promised land. That's not true. 
They were already God's people. They were already going to do great things for God. They'd already seen God do amazing things. And what I think this is all about is this. God says to his people, people are more important than your land. Yes, I've made this promise and you will get that, but some things are more important. And for us, perhaps it's this. People are more important than property. When we might feel in a bit of limbo, like people are more important than property. The only reason we want a building in the first place is so that more people can encounter the love of Jesus. If we lose that heart, if we lose that sight, then what's it all about? We might as well have eight services in here. But actually, it's about a presence and a people and actually seeing people 24-7. Don't get me wrong, the, the, having the land here for the people was good and having a building is going to be fantastic, but not just for the sake of it. Not something that we can just go, oh, great, we've got, we've got the building now, we can shut down. But no, actually, this is about a mission. And here it's about a mission. It's about God's heart for rescue. And that has to stay at the heart of all that we do. The whole narrative of Joshua is paused to demonstrate God is a God of rescue. A city, yes, gets raised to the floor, but God is a God of rescue. And in this case, it's Rahab. The prostitute, the foreigner, and in the, in the culture as well, she was a woman, so that was against her culturally as well. She had everything against her, and yet God says, God in some way knew there was someone in that city that had faith, someone in that city that had heard good things about God and was putting their trust in him. And it made me think about, we've sung a, a kind of version of it, I suppose, or a version of the lines today of Amazing Grace, written by John Newton. And for those that don't know, he was a drunkard, he was a bully, he was a bit of a nasty piece of work, but most notably, he was a slave trader. That's what he did. He traded human lives. I mean, it's just despicable. That's what he did. And then uh, he goes, the story goes that he was off the coast of Ireland, you know, manning his ship or doing whatever he was doing. And they got into a storm and into some trouble and there was a hole in the hull. And he prayed to God and said, God, help me. I don't know what else to do. Help us. And miraculously, the cargo shifted and plugged the gap in the hull. You think, oh, that's convenient. And so we go, okay, well, I'm going to live for God now. And it wasn't an instant thing, but over a number of years, he was reformed in his character. And before he died, he produced this kind of pamphlet that said, what I did was horrendous. What I did was wrong. What I did was evil. And William Wilberforce, who abolished slavery used this pamphlet and sent it to every single MP across the country to say, here's a guy who used to do it. Here's a guy who, the, the least of people, the kind of scum of society, if you like, a slave trader. Maybe that's kind of the equivalent of Rahab the prostitute in this story. Oh, if there's someone in all of Jericho to save, surely it's the king. Surely it's the carpenter. Surely it's the, the star knight of the realm. No, it's Rahab. No, it's Rahab's family. It's the last, the least, and the lost. That's God's heart. Even in the midst of the triumphs and the conquering thing of the whole of Joshua, which is amazing as you read the stories, he pauses to rescue that actually faith can spring up, and you need to hear this, faith can spring up in the most unlikely places. I mean, you might actually look at your own life and go, oh yeah, that's true for me. Faith springs up in the most unlikely places, and it says, God is a God who doesn't write people off. 
God is a God who always gives the opportunity for people to respond to his grace. Always gives the opportunity for people to hear about who he is. And whether we reject that or we go, okay, I want to know more about this, that's on our head. That's for us to make that decision. And uh, actually, I want us to think about responding to that a little bit later on. The second thing I want to just look at here is that God is greater than you think. And actually, God's greatness impacts far more than you know or appreciate. I remember um, it was a few, a couple of months ago, uh, someone said this to me. They said uh, they'd started coming to this church and um, they had a little word with me and they said, oh, we, we met with a, a midwife and we were having this chat with this midwife and uh, the midwife said to me, oh, there's this, there's this amazing church in Chesterfield. And you know what they do? They, they cook meals for people that have just given birth. Uh, you know, I don't know the name of the church, but, you know, you're saying you're Christians. Maybe you should get involved there. You know, you get some meals and stuff, and, and they look after you. And, and uh, it's just amazing, isn't it? That was from a midwife who has no connection to RK. I didn't give her a fiver. Um, I don't know who she is. But word spreads. God's greatness goes far beyond, actually, where we think it goes. People hear the great things of God, and that is exactly what happens here in this story. The prostitute Rahab's actions, you would think in isolation, are remarkable. Okay, Jericho is probably all she's known. Her, her um, customers, for want of a better word. Uh, so her livelihood, um, her family, her mates, her business, her life is wrapped up in this city. All she's ever known. And yet, a couple of spies rock up and she throws it all away. It seems remarkable, unless, unless God's greater than we think he is. Unless the greatness of God goes further than we think it does. You know, sometimes we think, oh, well, I don't know about Steve down the pub. He's not interested in God. Don't write Steve from down the pub off, because God's greater than Steve from down the pub. I don't know a Steve from down the pub, but it's just the first name that pops into my head. It's a remarkable story until you realize what the what they represent. This is what it says. Before the men lay down, Rahab came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know. She didn't say, I think. I know that the Lord has given you this land. I know it. I don't know if she got a memo. She felt it in her soul. But she knew what was coming. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us. And that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. Word has got to us about this amazing miracle where Moses had his staff and he said, you shall not pass. And the waters went like that and they went through. And then the chariots got like absolutely mauled in the sea. And we've heard about that. And we've heard about your other battles. And it's amazing. There must be something more going on here. We're melting away in fear. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Wow, that sounds like a confession of faith, doesn't it? The Lord your God is the God. I'm living in this city, Jericho, with all my false gods and my trade and the stuff I've been doing. But wow, I've heard of this God. I've heard of this amazing God who's done amazing things. It's a staggering claim, actually, from this woman, that I know the Lord has given you the land. And you know what I love about Rahab? And I think I've said this before. She does not play 20 questions. 
She's not like, can you please give me the details of the number of chariots that were thrown into the sea? How did Moses do that exactly? You know, when the water came out from the rock, was it Evian? Or was it a different brand? Like, she doesn't, she doesn't go into detail. She's just like, I've heard and I know. She doesn't have a PhD in theology. She probably doesn't go on to have a PhD in theology. She doesn't dot all of her I's and cross all of her T's. She doesn't get everything lined up. She just goes, I've heard something and I know something. And before I didn't know it, but now I do. And I have shared this before, but it's as if like it's a wow God moment. And um, I definitely shared this before, so forgive me, but I've only got married once, so I've only got one illustration for it. And it beautifully happened the other week when James and Catherine were getting married. I remember having the conversation with James. I was like, you know, when she comes down the aisle, mate, are you going to look? Are you going to look forward? Are you going to cry? Will you close your eyes? What, what will you do? And he's like, I don't know. And I was like that on my wedding day. I, was like, I actually didn't turn around. I kind of ruined all the photos because I was just too scared to look, just too emotional. Because I knew that if I turned around, I'd just have a breakdown. I just knew I would. I think I was crying anyway, probably. I was a bit emotional. I'm an emotional guy. It's okay. But it's like, the, the whole point is you turn around and you're supposed to, as the groom, you're supposed to be like, wow. Right? You're not supposed to be like, what am I doing? You're supposed to be like, wow. I think Rahab was like that. She'd heard these things of God and she was like, Wow. When was the last time we were like that when we were thinking about God? When we were thinking about who God is? Do we go? You know what? Wow. There's a God in heaven who loves me, who gave his son for me. I am loved. Wow. Because the temptation is to go the other way, isn't it? And to be like, oh, God wouldn't love me. God wouldn't be interested in me. No, he does. He's, he's done the most remarkable things, the most miraculous things, precisely because he does love you. And this, you know, the, the wedding metaphor falls short in so many ways because actually the wow we should have for who God is and what he's done for us is a billion, million, trillion, uh, add it all up, infinite number in comparison to that. Her faith is solely born out of the greatness of God. She's heard something and she's gone, I'm in. Don't underestimate the greatness of God when we're sharing the good news with people, when we're talking about our faith, don't underestimate the greatness of God to overcome anything, to overcome anyone, to pull people to his heart. You know, if God is awesome, you know what that means for us today? It means transformation is possible. It means those that are sick can be made well. It means actually those that are dead can come back to life, whether that's in earthly life or whether that's actually eternally. We, we have that eternal life. People like me, people like you can get a fresh start no matter what we've done. People like Rahab can get a fresh start in Christ. If she trusted in her own ability, in her own skills to save her, she would have been done. But she heard the greatness of God and said, I want something of that. Rahab, the city is going to be laid to waste. You know it is. Yet even in the darkest corners of Jericho, and that would be a dark corner of Jericho, hope springs from the darkness. No matter how far gone or difficult some of your circumstance might be, some of your relationships might be, some of the people that you're encountering might be, some of the experiences you're having at work, how difficult they might be, God goes with you. 
And God is greater. And God can overcome those things. And what I want to just say here on Rahab's faith is, she didn't just have head knowledge. There's something special about Rahab here. Yes, she's heard about the greatness of God. But there's, I shared this yesterday. I was talking about God, the Holy Spirit. There's a difference between knowing something. I know this is going to seem really like, you're going to be like, what? Knowing something and knowing something. Isn't there? Like, I know that theologically and kind of it says that. It says that, so it must be true. And it says God so loved the world, so I know that God so loved the world. But knowing God so loved the world in here is different, isn't it? There is a difference between knowing something and knowing something. And Rahab had just done that. Yes, she knew God had done these great things. But she goes, I need to respond to this. I can't just go, oh, it's great that God is great and he's doing all these things and I'll just carry on doing what I'll do. She didn't. She rescued the spies. She goes, there's something great about this God. I'm going to act upon it. And I can remember... um, you know, growing up in church um, and kind of, you know, being, well, I won't say forced, that's a bit harsh on my parents, uh, encouraged strongly um, to, to be in church every week. We'll put it like that. And, um, you know, feeling a bit guilty if I, I didn't go, but because I wanted to play football or just stay in bed or whatever I wanted to do when I was kind of 14, 15, 16. And um, remember at 16, meeting with God the Holy Spirit. And it moved from, oh, I know about God, to I know God. It it went from just theoretical to something that was real. And I'd say since that point, the last 14 years, have, you know, there's been ups and downs, and I get it wrong sometimes, I get it right sometimes, but it's my attempt in my walk to bear that out. That I know something in my heart, therefore I have to be a certain way. Therefore, I have to live in a certain way. I have to shine a light as best I can in a certain way. Because if it's just up here, then, well, what obligation are we to do anything? Well, okay, I will believe that to be true. So, so what? I believe a load of things up here. No, if it's something that is in our core and in our being, and God the Holy Spirit does that, then it leads to transformation in our own life, and it should lead to transformation in our circumstance and transformation in our actions. The transformation for Rahab was she took refuge in God. That's our primary transformation. All of a sudden, we don't trust ourselves to save ourselves, but we put our trust in Jesus. And that has implications across the board. And this passage talks about a lot of things. There's a lot of things in here about God's promises. I'll give you a land. Jericho's going to prove it. It's about rescue. It's about how great God is. But you know what? It's also a foretaste of who Jesus is and what Jesus does. And I, I think this passage screams Jesus. You're thinking, how on earth does it scream Jesus? I don't see his name written down in Joshua chapter 2. But I think his name is all over it. Rahab cuts a deal with the spies. And when you come back to Jericho, she says, remember me, remember me. We've come to an arrangement. This is what it says. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in your window through which you let us down and you gather into your house um, your father your mother, your brothers, or your father's house. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and will be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, if you grass us up, then we shall be guiltless with respect to our oath that we've made us swear. 
And she said, according to all their words, so be it. Then she sent them away, she lowered them down, and off they went. And she tied the scarlet cord in her window. That's what she did. She responded. In order to be rescued, when judgment comes, when they come back for Jericho, in order for her to be rescued, she had to, in faith, take this scarlet cord and throw it out of her window. Kind of fortunate that she's got like a, you know, she's got a beautiful view of the plane and she's got a window seat. That's convenient, isn't it? You know, what happens if she was in the middle of the city? How are they going to work that one out? But she wasn't. Her, her house was in the wall, so she could throw out this scarlet cord. And it's a sign to the people. Oh, yeah, that's the woman that's on our side. That's the woman who helped us. Uh, anyone who's in her pad, we don't touch. In fact, we protect. Okay, so if the scarlet cord is there, we'll protect her. And as I read that, I read that again early this morning, and straight into my mind came the Passover story. Do we know the story of the Passover? Which wouldn't have, you know, it would have been in the memory of Joshua and, and the people that have passed on that story. I know it's a different generation, but it had been a famous story where God said, look, this is what you need to do. You need to take a lamb and, you, you, you know, you need to take it and you need to sacrifice it and you need to put blood across your door. And anyone that's marked with this blood, anyone, any property that's marked with that blood, anyone that's inside that, when God comes and judges Egypt, anyone inside will be safe. The blood will be the mark, will be the sign that you are with God. Anyone who's on the outside, the firstborn is going to pass away. That's what the Passover was. And they remember how God passed over their iniquity, passed over their sin and spared them and rescued them. This has all the hallmarks of that, do you not think? Anyone who's inside, anyone who's there will be saved. If you put your trust in me again, you will be saved. Anyone who doesn't put their trust in me, I'm sorry, but they're going to have it. But if you gather your family, if you gather your friends, if you gather whoever wants to put their trust in God into your place, even if you cram it with hundreds of people, as long as they're on the inside, they'll be fine. And what was the sign? What was the mark? A scarlet cord. Now it could be, I could be overreaching here, and wish you can forgive me. It could be that that was the only color she had lying around on a floor. It could be. It could have been that she'd thrown a purple cord. But she didn't, did she? It wasn't a purple cord. It wasn't a yellow cord. It was a scarlet cord. And as you go through the Bible, as you, as you, as you, as you read through, it's synonymous with blood. Synonymous with sacrifice. There are sins like scarlet. And it screams Jesus. It screams, you plead something else. I'll rescue you. If we plead Jesus, I'll rescue you. Who does the message go back to from the spies? It goes to a guy called Joshua. Joshua's name means God is salvation. Joshua's name, the word Jesus, the name Jesus, the root is Joshua. Some of a God incidence or coincidence, you might say. I don't believe in coincidences. I just think it's the fact that God is saying, this is Jesus all over, and you need to see this is Jesus all over it. That anyone who puts their trust in my son, anyone who pleads his blood, which would be scarlet, which would be red, anyone who in faith says, yes, I'm in, will be saved. We live in a broken world, don't we? We live in a world that is full of pain and misery, and each one of us has gone our own way, the Bible says. The Bible talks about it as sinfulness. Our rejection of God. And the Bible, I know this is going to seem really harsh and really doom and gloom, but the Bible says the penalty for that is death. And you might think, well, that's not fair. Well, it is fair. 
because God's good and we've breached God. But yet, this is the really good news, that wasn't the end of the story. Just as it wasn't the end of the story for Rahab. What did Rahab deserve? Well, she's not a stand-up citizen, is she? She's hardly a kind of model, oh, yes, let's all follow Rahab in her, the way she was. No. But God said, you know what? Rahab can come to me and she can find grace and forgiveness and she can become a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come for Rahab. If it's true for Rahab, it's true for me. If it's true for Rahab, it's true for you. If it's true for Rahab, it's true for your neighbor. You are not beyond grace. You are not beyond God because he's greater than you are. I just find that amazing. Throw out this scarlet cord. Plead something else and you'll be saved. And that's the call, isn't it, for us today? Plead the blood of Jesus. Put your trust in the cross of Christ and you will be saved. You will be given a fresh start. You will be given hope and a future. And you will actually become the men and women you were created to be. Because we were made for a purpose. We were made for a reason. We are valuable. You matter. You matter to God. You matter to us. You matter to other people. And our way to being saved, our way to new life, our way to hope is to surrender ourselves and throw out our scarlet cord. And our scarlet cord is Jesus Christ. To say, I'm going to plead him. And we face a choice this morning. Every single one of us faces that choice. Will we place our life in his hands and have our eternal destiny changed? And I said it, I want this to become a little catchphrase. By putting your trust in Jesus, it is the best decision you will ever make. To plead that is the best decision you will ever make. My conclusion is this. The whole of Joshua chapter 2 stops because God wants to tell you he loves you. Joshua chapter 2 is there to say, you're not beyond grace. You're not beyond hope. I love you. I've got a plan for your life. I want you to be part of my family. And you know what you've got to do? You've got to throw out your scarlet cord. That's what Joshua 2 is there for. Because Joshua 3 and 4 is, let's do this. But Joshua 2 pauses, and it pauses, I believe, for you. And it uses Rahab. And you know what's beautiful about Rahab? Amazing woman. Rahab marries a guy called Salmon. We don't name people like that anymore, do we? I, I, knew, I really wanted to... Re- I didn't go for that joke, Peter. Um, <laughs> yeah, fishy, yeah, funny. Um, a guy called Salmon, and, uh, who is an Israelite guy, okay? You think, oh, great, Rahab settled down. That's great, that's good. They have a kid called Boaz. Boaz marries a woman called Ruth. Ruth is in the Bible, has a whole book about her. And through that line, through Boaz and Ruth and beyond, Rahab becomes the great-great-grandma of the greatest king in Israel's history, David. Rahab the prostitute becomes the great-great-grandma of King David. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that like, that's a fresh start if there's ever a fresh start, right? You're thinking, I need a fresh start, I need some of that. There's a fresh start for you. Wow, this is where I was. I've heard about the greatness of God, but it didn't stay here. It needed to be something here. And now look where I am, and it's all God's grace. Amazing. Her eternal destiny has changed, but also her earthly life was completely transformed. And you know what? I want that for you. 
I love that in Ecclesiastes it says God places eternity in our hearts. And so it's true, eternity starts now. Your life with God can start today. And your life will be changed forever. Not just the other side of heaven, but this side of heaven too. And that's something that I want all of us to have.